Section 1 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nikki Sullivan. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 1, Section 1, Chapter 1. Part 1 of the Propriety of Action consisting of three sections. Section 1 of the Sense of Propriety. Chapter 1. Of Sympathy. How selfish soever a man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others, and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it, except the pleasure of seeing it. Of this kind is pity or compassion, the emotion which we feel for the misery of others, when we either see it, or are made to conceive it in a very lively manner. That we often derive sorrow from the sorrow of others is a matter of fact too obvious to require any instances to prove it. For this sentiment, like all the other original passions of human nature, is by no means confined to the virtuous and humane, though they perhaps may feel it with the most exquisite sensibility. The greatest ruffian, the most hardened violator of the laws of society, is not altogether without it. As we have no immediate experience of what other men feel, we can form no idea of the manner in which they are affected, but by conceiving what we ourselves should feel in the like situation. Though our brother is upon the rack, as long as we ourselves are at our ease, our senses will never inform us of what he suffers. They never did, and never can, carry us beyond our own person, and it is by the imagination only that we can form any conception of what are his sensations. Neither can that faculty help us to this any other way than by representing to us what would be our own if we were in his case. It is the impressions of our own senses only, not those of his, which our imaginations copy. By the imagination we place ourselves in his situation, we conceive ourselves enduring all the same torments, we enter, as it were, into his body, and become in some measure the same person with him, and thence form some idea of his sensations, and even feel something which, though weaker in degree, is not altogether unlike them. His agonies, when they are thus brought home to ourselves, when we have thus adopted and made them our own, begin at last to affect us, and we then tremble and shudder at the thought of what he feels. For as to be in pain or distress of any kind excites the most excessive sorrow, so to conceive or to imagine that we are in it excites some degree of the same emotion in proportion to the vivacity or dullness of the conception that this is the source of our fellow-feeling for the misery of others, that it is by changing places in fancy with the sufferer, that we come either to conceive or to be affected by what he feels, may be demonstrated by many obvious observations, if it should not be thought sufficiently evident of itself. When we see a stroke aimed and just ready to fall upon the leg or arm of another person, we naturally shrink and draw back our own leg or our own arm, and when it does fall, we feel it in some measure, and are hurt by it as well as the sufferer. 
the mob when they are gazing at a dancer on a slack rope naturally writhe and twist and balance their own bodies as they see him do and as they feel that they themselves must do if in his situation persons of delicate fibres and a weak constitution of body complain that in looking on the sores and ulcers which are exposed by beggars in the streets they are apt to feel an itching or uneasy sensation on the correspondent part of their own bodies the horror which they conceive at the misery of those wretches affects the particular part in themselves more than any other because that horror arises from conceiving what they themselves would suffer if they really were the wretches whom they are looking upon and if that particular part in themselves was actually affected in the same miserable manner the very force of this conception is sufficient in their feeble frames to produce that itching or uneasy sensation complained of men of the most robust make observe that in looking upon sore eyes they often feel a very sensible soreness in their own which proceeds from the same reason that organ being in the strongest man more delicate than any other part of the body is in the weakest neither is it those circumstances only which create pain or sorrow that call forth our fellow-feeling whatever is the passion which arises from any object in the person principally concerned an analogous emotion springs up at the thought of his situation in the breast of every attentive spectator our joy for the deliverance of those heroes of tragedy or romance who interest us is as sincere as our grief for their distress and our fellow-feeling with their misery is not more real than that with their happiness we enter into their gratitude towards those faithful friends who did not desert them in their difficulties and we heartily go along with their resentment against those perfidious traitors who injured abandoned or deceived them in every passion of which the mind of man is susceptible the emotions of the bystander always correspond to what by bringing the case home to himself he imagines should be the sentiments of the sufferer pity and compassion are words appropriated to signify our fellow-feeling with the sorrow of others sympathy though its meaning was perhaps originally the same may now however without much impropriety be made use of to denote our fellow-feeling with any passion whatever upon some occasions sympathy may seem to arise merely from the view of a certain emotion in another person the passions upon some occasions may seem to be transfused from one man to another instantaneously and antecedent to any knowledge of what excited them in the person principally concerned grief and joy for example strongly expressed in the look and gestures of any one at once affect the spectator with some degree of a like painful or agreeable emotion a smiling face is to everybody that sees it a cheerful object as a sorrowful countenance on the other hand is a melancholy one this however does not hold universally or with regard to every passion there are some passions of which the expressions excite no sort of sympathy but before we are acquainted with what gave occasion to them serve rather to disgust and provoke us against them 
the furious behavior of an angry man is more likely to exasperate us against himself than against his enemies. As we are unacquainted with his provocation, we cannot bring his case home to ourselves, nor conceive anything like the passions which it excites. But we plainly see what is the situation of those with whom he is angry, and to what violence they may be exposed from so enraged an adversary. We readily, therefore, sympathize with their fear or resentment, and are immediately disposed to take part against the man from whom they appear to be in so much danger. If the very appearances of grief and joy inspire us with some degree of the like emotions, it is because they suggest to us the general idea of some good or bad fortune that has befallen the person in whom we observe them, and in these passions this is sufficient to have some little influence upon us. The effects of grief and joy terminate in the person who feels those emotions, of which the expressions do not, like those of resentment, suggest to us the idea of any other person for whom we are concerned, and whose interests are opposite to his. The general idea of good or bad fortune, therefore, creates some concern for the person who has met with it, but the general idea of provocation excites no sympathy with the anger of the man who has received it. Nature, it seems, teaches us to be more averse to enter into this passion, and till informed of its cause, to be disposed rather to take part against it. Even our sympathy with the grief or joy of another, before we are informed of the cause of either, is always extremely imperfect. General lamentations, which express nothing but the anguish of the sufferer, create rather a curiosity to inquire into his situation, along with some disposition to sympathize with him, than any actual sympathy that is very sensible. The first question which we ask is, what has befallen you? Till this be answered, though we are uneasy both from the vague idea of his misfortune, and still more from torturing ourselves with conjectures about what it may be, yet our fellow-feeling is not very considerable. Sympathy, therefore, does not arise so much from the view of the passion, as from that of the situation which excites it. We sometimes feel for another a passion of which he himself seems to be altogether incapable, because, when we put ourselves in his case, the passion arises in our breast from the imagination, though it does not in his from the reality. We blush for the impudence and rudeness of another, though he himself appears to have no sense of the impropriety of his own behavior, because we cannot help feeling with what confusion we ourselves should be covered, had we behaved in so absurd a manner. Of all the calamities to which the condition of mortality exposes mankind, the loss of reason appears, to those who have the least spark of humanity, by far the most dreadful, and they behold that last stage of human wretchedness with deeper commiseration than any other. But the poor wretch, who is in it, laughs and sings, perhaps, and is altogether insensible of his own misery. The anguish which humanity feels, therefore, at the sight of such an object, cannot be the reflection of any sentiment of the sufferer. 
the compassion of the spectator must arise altogether from the consideration of what he himself would feel if he was reduced to the same unhappy situation, and, what perhaps is impossible, was at the same time able to regard it with his present reason and judgment. What are the pangs of a mother, when she hears the moanings of her infant that, during the agony of disease, cannot express what it feels? In her idea of what it suffers, she joins, to its real helplessness, her own consciousness of that helplessness, and her own terrors for the unknown consequences of its disorder, and out of all these forms, for her own sorrow, the most complete image of misery and distress. The infant, however, feels only the uneasiness of the present instant which can never be great. With regard to the future, it is perfectly secure, and, in its thoughtlessness and want of foresight, possesses an antidote against fear and anxiety, the great tormentors of the human breast, from which reason and philosophy will, in vain, attempt to defend it, when it grows up to a man. We sympathize even with the dead, and, overlooking what is of real importance in their situation, that awful futurity which awaits them, we are chiefly affected by those circumstances which strike our senses, but can have no influence on their happiness. It is miserable, we think, to be deprived of the light of the sun, to be shut out from life and conversation, to be laid in the cold grave a prey to corruption and the reptiles of the earth, to be no more thought of in this world, but to be obliterated, in a little time, from the affections, and almost from the memory, of their dearest friends and relations. Surely, we imagine, we can never feel too much for those who have suffered so dreadful a calamity. The tribute of our fellow-feeling seems doubly due to them now, when they are in danger of being forgot by everybody, and by the vain honors which we pay to their memory, we endeavor, for our own misery, artificially to keep alive our melancholy remembrance of their misfortune. That our sympathy can afford them no consolation seems to be an addition to their calamity. And to think that all we can do is unavailing, and that what alleviates all other distress the regret, the love, and the lamentations of their friends, can yield no comfort to them, serves only to exasperate our sense of their misery. The happiness of the dead, however, most assuredly, is affected by none of these circumstances, nor is it the thought of these things which can ever disturb the profound security of their repose. The idea of the dreary and endless melancholy, which the fancy naturally ascribes to their condition, arises altogether from our joining to the change which has been produced upon them, our own consciousness of that change, from our putting ourselves in their situation, and from our lodging, if I may be allowed to say so, our own living souls in their inanimated bodies and thence conceiving what would be our emotions in this case. It is from this very illusion of the imagination that the foresight of our own dissolution is so terrible to us, and that the idea of those circumstances 
which undoubtedly can give us no pain when we are dead, makes us miserable while we are alive. And from thence arises one of the most important principles in human nature, the dread of death, the great poison to the happiness, but the great restraint upon the injustice of mankind, which, while it afflicts and mortifies the individual, guards and protects the society. Chapter 2 of The Pleasure of Mutual Sympathy But whatever may be the cause of sympathy, or however it may be excited, nothing pleases us more than to observe in other men a fellow-feeling with all the emotions of our own breast, nor are we ever so much shocked as by the appearance of the contrary. Those who are fond of deducing all of our sentiments from certain refinements of self-love, think themselves at no loss to account according to their own principles, both for this pleasure and this pain. Man, say they, conscious of his own weakness, and of the need which he has for the assistance of others, rejoices whenever he observes that they adopt his own passions, because he is then assured of that assistance, and grieves whenever he observes the contrary because he is then assured of their opposition. But both the pleasure and the pain are always felt so instantaneously, and often upon such frivolous occasions, that it seems evident that neither of them can be derived from any such self-interested consideration. A man is mortified when, after having endeavored to divert the company, he looks round and sees that nobody laughs at his jests but himself. On the contrary, the mirth of the company is highly agreeable to him, and he regards this correspondence of their sentiments with his own as the greatest applause. Neither does his pleasure seem to arise altogether from the additional vivacity which his mirth may receive from sympathy with theirs, nor his pain from the disappointment he meets with, when he misses this pleasure. Though both the one and the other, no doubt, do in some measure. When we have read a book or poem so often that we can no longer find any amusement in reading it by ourselves, we can still take pleasure in reading it to a companion. To him it has all the graces of novelty. We enter into the surprise and admiration which it naturally excites in him, but which it is no longer capable of exciting in us. We consider all the ideas which it presents rather in the light in which they appear to him, than in that which they appear to ourselves, and we are amused by sympathy with his amusement which thus enlivens our own. On the contrary, we should be vexed if he did not seem to be entertained with it, and we could no longer take any pleasure in reading it to him. It is the same case here. The mirth of the company, no doubt, enlivens our own mirth, and their silence, no doubt, disappoints us. But though this may contribute both to the pleasure which we derive from the one, and to the pain which we feel from the other, it is by no means the sole cause of either. And this correspondence of the sentiments of others with our own appears to be a cause of pleasure, and the one of it a cause of pain, which cannot be accounted for in this manner. The sympathy which my friends express with my joy might indeed give me pleasure by enlivening that joy, 
but that which they express in my grief could give me none, if it served only to enliven that grief. Sympathy, however, enlivens joy and alleviates grief. It enlivens joy by presenting another source of satisfaction, and it alleviates grief by insinuating into the heart almost the only agreeable sensation which it is at that time capable of receiving. It is to be observed accordingly that we are still more anxious to communicate to our friends our disagreeable than our agreeable passions, that we derive still more satisfaction from their sympathy with the former than from that with the latter, and that we are still more shocked by the want of it. How are the unfortunate relieved when they have found out a person to whom they can communicate the cause of their sorrow? Upon his sympathy they seem to disburthen themselves of a part of their distress. He is not improperly said to share it with them. He not only feels a sorrow of the same kind with that which they feel, but as if he has derived a part of it to himself, what he feels seems to alleviate the weight of what they feel. Yet by relating their misfortunes they in some measure renew their grief. They awaken in their memory the remembrance of those circumstances which occasioned their affliction. Their tears accordingly flow faster than before, and they are apt to abandon themselves to all the weakness of sorrow. They take pleasure, however, in all this, and, it is evident, are sensibly relieved by it, because the sweetness of his sympathy more than compensates the bitterness of that sorrow which, in order to excite this sympathy, they had thus enlivened and renewed. The cruelest insult, on the contrary, which can be offered to the unfortunate, is to appear to make light of their calamities. To seem not to be affected with the joy of our companions is but want of politeness, but not to wear a serious countenance when they tell us their afflictions is real and gross inhumanity. Love is an agreeable, resentment a disagreeable passion, and accordingly we are not half so anxious that our friends should adopt our friendships as that they should enter into our resentments. We can forgive them, though they seem to be little affected with the favors which we may have received, but lose all patience if they seem indifferent about the injuries which may have been done to us. Nor are we half so angry with them for not entering into our gratitude as for not sympathizing with our resentment. They can easily avoid being friends to our friends, but can hardly avoid being enemies to those with whom we are at variance. We seldom resent their being at enmity with the first, though upon that account we may sometimes affect to make an awkward quarrel with them but we quarrel with them in good earnest if they live in friendship with the last. The agreeable passions of love and joy can satisfy and support the heart without any auxiliary pleasure. The bitter and painful emotions of grief and resentment more strongly require the healing consolation of sympathy. As the person who is principally interested in any event is pleased with our sympathy and hurt by the want of it, so we, too, seem to be pleased when we are able to sympathize with him, and to be hurt when we are unable to do so. We run not only to congratulate the successful, but to condole with the afflicted, 
and the pleasure which we find in the conversation of one whom in all the passions of his heart we can entirely sympathize with seems to do more than compensate the painfulness of that sorrow with which the view of his situation affects us on the contrary it is always disagreeable to feel that we cannot sympathize with him and instead of being pleased with this exemption from sympathetic pain it hurts us to find that we cannot share his uneasiness if we hear a person loudly lamenting his misfortunes which however upon bringing the case home to ourselves we feel can produce no such violent effect upon us we are shocked at his grief and because we cannot enter into it call it pusillanimity and weakness it gives us the spleen on the other hand to see another too happy or too much elevated as we call it with any little piece of good fortune we are disobliged even with his joy and because we cannot go along with it call it levity and folly we are even put out of humor if our companion laughs louder or longer at a joke than we think it deserves that is than we feel that we ourselves could laugh at it chapter three of the manner in which we judge the propriety or impropriety of the affections of other men by their concord or dissonance with our own when the original passions of the person principally concerned are in perfect concord with the sympathetic emotions of the spectator they necessarily appear to this last just and proper and suitable to their objects and on the contrary when upon bringing the case home to himself he finds that they do not coincide with what he feels they necessarily appear to him unjust and improper and unsuitable to the causes which excite them to approve of the passions of another therefore as suitable to their objects is the same thing as to observe that we entirely sympathize with them and not to approve of them as such is the same thing as to observe that we do not entirely sympathize with them the man who resents the injuries that have been done to me and observes that i resent them precisely as he does necessarily approves of my resentment the man whose sympathy keeps time to my grief cannot but admit the reasonableness of my sorrow he who admires the same poem or the same picture and admires them exactly as i do must surely allow the justness of my admiration he who laughs at the same joke and laughs along with me cannot well deny the propriety of my laughter on the contrary the person who upon these different occasions either feels no such emotion as that which i feel or feels none that bears any proportion to mine cannot avoid disapproving my sentiments on account of their dissonance with his own if my animosity goes beyond what the indignation of my friend can correspond to if my grief exceeds what his most tender compassion can go along with if my admiration is either too high or too low to tally with his own if i laugh loud and heartily when only he smiles or on the contrary only smile when he laughs loud and heartily in all these cases as soon as he comes from considering the object to observe how i am affected by it according as there is more or less disproportion between his sentiments and mine i must incur a greater or less degree of his disapprobation 
and upon all occasions his own sentiments are the standards and measures by which he judges of mine. To approve of another man's opinions is to adopt those opinions, and to adopt them is to approve of them. If the same arguments which convince you convince me likewise, I necessarily approve of your conviction, and if they do not, I necessarily disapprove of it. Neither can I possibly conceive that I should do the one without the other. To approve or disapprove, therefore, of the opinions of others is acknowledged by everybody to mean no more than to observe their agreement or disagreement with our own. But this is equally the case with regard to our approbation or disapprobation of the sentiments or passions of others. There are, indeed, some cases in which we seem to approve without any sympathy or correspondence of sentiments, and in which, consequently, the sentiment of approbation would seem to be different from the perception of this coincidence. A little attention, however, will convince us that even in these cases our approbation is ultimately founded upon a sympathy or correspondence of this kind. I shall give an instance in things of very frivolous nature, because in them the judgments of mankind are less apt to be perverted by wrong systems. We may often approve of a jest, and think the laughter of the company quite just and proper, though we ourselves do not laugh, because perhaps we are in a grave humor, or happen to have our attention engaged with other objects. We have learned, however, from experience, what sort of pleasantry is upon most occasions capable of making us laugh, and we observe that this is one of that kind. We approve, therefore, of the laughter of the company, and feel that it is natural and suitable to its object, because, though in our present mood we cannot easily enter into it, we are sensible that upon most occasions we should very heartily join in it. The same thing often happens with regard to all the other passions. A stranger passes by us in the street with all the marks of the deepest affliction, and we are immediately told that he has just received the news of the death of his father. It is impossible that, in this case, we should not approve of his grief. Yet it may often happen, without any defect of humanity on our part, that, so far from entering into the violence of his sorrow, we should scarce conceive the first movements of concern upon his account. Both he and his father, perhaps, are entirely unknown to us, or we happen to be employed about other things, and do not take time to picture out in our imagination the different circumstances of distress which must occur to him. We have learned, however, from experience, that such misfortune naturally excites such a degree of sorrow, and we know that if we took time to consider his situation fully and in all its parts, we should, without a doubt, most sincerely sympathize with him. It is upon the consciousness of this conditional sympathy that our approbation of his sorrow is founded, even in those cases in which that sympathy does not actually take place and the general rules derived from our preceding experience of what our sentiments would commonly correspond with, correct upon this, as upon many other occasions, the impropriety of our present emotions. 
the sentiment or affection of the heart from which any action proceeds and upon which its whole virtue or vice must ultimately depend may be considered under two different aspects or in two different relations first in the relation to the cause which excites it or the motive which gives occasion to it and secondly in relation to the end which it proposes or the effect which it tends to produce in the suitableness or unsuitableness in the proportion or disproportion which the affection seems to bear to the cause or object which excites it consists the propriety or impropriety the decency or ungracefulness of the consequent action in the beneficial or hurtful nature of the effects which the affection aims at or tends to produce consists the merit or demerit of the action the qualities by which it is entitled to reward or is deserving of punishment philosophers have of late years considered chiefly the tendency of affections and have given little attention to the relation which they stand in to the cause which excites them in common life however when we judge of any person's conduct and of the sentiments which directed it we constantly consider them under both these aspects when we blame in another man the excesses of love of grief of resentment we not only consider the ruinous effects which they tend to produce but the little occasion which was given for them the merit of his favorite we say is not so great his misfortune is not so dreadful his provocation is not so extraordinary as to justify so violent a passion we should have indulged we say perhaps have approved of the violence of his emotion had the cause been in any respect proportioned to it when we judge in this manner of any affection as proportioned or disproportioned to the cause which excites it it is scarce possible that we should make use of any other rule or canon but the correspondent affection in ourselves if upon bringing the case home to our own breast we find that the sentiments which it gives occasion to coincide and tally with our own we necessarily approve of them as proportioned and suitable to their objects if otherwise we necessarily disapprove of them as extravagant and out of proportion every faculty in one man is the measure by which he judges of the like faculty in another i judge of your sight by my sight of your ear by my ear of your reason by my reason of your resentment by my resentment of your love by my love i neither have nor can have any other way of judging about them end of section one Recording by Nikki Sullivan, Chicago.